Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. A very Christmassy passage. I'm sure you're all familiar with this. Genesis chapter 3. This will be our kind of uh, launching point, and then we'll find ourselves in some different places in the scriptures today, but we're going to start in Genesis 3. The premise of this series of messages throughout the Advent season, uh, far as the curse is found, is that Jesus Christ came into the world to bring his blessings, to bring his healing, to bring his peace into human brokenness and rebellion and sin. That line from the Isaac Watts hymn that we're used to singing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, there's actually a meditation on Psalm 98, which is really about the second coming of Christ when he comes to judge the world. It's still appropriate to sing during Advent because we're still awaiting people. We're still looking forward to his return. But there's a line in the third verse of this hymn which says this, He comes, it says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that's the good news of Christmas. The good news is that Jesus Christ came into the world, the Son of God, born as a man, born of Mary, to bring his blessings into our brokenness. And so what we're doing in this series of messages is beginning in Genesis 3, which is the saddest chapter in the Bible because it's where everything went wrong. God created a perfect world and he created innocent people in his image. They were in relationship with him. They were in relationship with each other. They were in relationship with the earth as they stewarded the world and its resources until everything goes wrong in chapter 3 when Satan in the form of a serpent comes to Eve and tempts her to violate the law of God concerning the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you know where the story goes from there. The whole creation and all humanity is plunged into a state of futility and brokenness and curse because of God's response, that is God's judgment upon human sin in Genesis 3. So in terms of our structure, what we're going to do is kind of if you think of this as kind of a transcentennial flight, we're going to start in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. We're going to get a glimpse of what God's response to sin is, specifically in the aspect of relationships. And then we're going to get a connecting flight, if you will, in the New Testament era around the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and the immediate effects of that and see what Jesus accomplished in this regard during his earthly ministry and then we'll take one more hop over to a future kingdom our final destination if you will is the eternal kingdom of God where the curse is completely removed so we have these three touch points and so we'll start 
in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 14. This is after God has come to Adam and Eve and he's asked them what's happened and so they've now kind of fessed up, although in a very roundabout sort of blame-shifting way. And God responds in this way, speaking to serpent and to Eve and to Adam. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Some Bibles might actually say for your husband. But he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. <laughs> so last week we looked at the first part of uh, verse 16. Really kind of verses 15 and 16. Relating to the curse of pain in childbearing. Now God said to the woman, because of your sin and rebellion, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And certainly the physical pain of giving birth to a child, which is substantial, I've heard, is a reminder in that would happen again and again throughout history, throughout generations, a reminder of human sin, a reminder of our need for forgiveness and for salvation. But broader, I argued last week that I, I believe it's broader than just the physical pain of childbirth. I believe it is. it also pertains to the, the frustration and heartache that comes from sinners giving birth to sinners giving birth to sinners. And so the sin cycle perpetuates itself through childbearing. And Jesus redeems that curse by himself being born of woman but not with a human father, by being conceived of the Holy Spirit uh, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he breaks the cycle, and childbearing becomes the means of salvation because it brings forth our Savior, brings forth the Lord Christ who would take our burden upon himself. So today we walk just one step further. He's still addressing the woman here in verse 16 where he says, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And I see in this the seed of the curse of broken relationship. Before the fall, human relationships were in perfect unison and harmony. There was really only the one human relationship between Adam and Eve at that point. But they were in complete unison and agreement and peace and harmony with one another until this fall into sin and then the curse that God places upon them will affect every human being, not just every woman, for 
the rest of human history until he sets it all right at a future date. We're not there yet. Your desire will be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. So we need to talk about what this means. But before we talk about what it means, I think we need to talk about what it doesn't mean. There is a really common way of, of explaining and seeing this curse uh, that I think gets it wrong because its starting point is not accurate. But it's common enough. You may have even had this thought yourself or heard somebody else espouse it. I think it's worth starting by saying, no, it's not this. This is not what it is. So what some people say is that before the fall, as when everybody was innocent and things were the way God intended, that there was no distinction in the roles of husband and wife. And that as a punishment for Eve's role in the rebellion, God now declares that henceforth wives will be submissive to their husbands. In other words, male leadership and female submission in the home only exists as a punishment for sin. That's how the argument goes. Maybe you've heard something like that. Man and woman were completely on, uh, played the same roles. There was no distinction to be made whatsoever until the fall. And then as a judgment, God said, okay, now the woman is going to be submissive to the husband. And so when you see the principle of male leadership and female submission in the home and even in the church as it plays out through the New Testament, people point their finger at that and say, yeah, but the reason that that happened is because of the fall. That is a result of the fall. I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that's what this curse is. And I'm going to tell you at least two reasons why. Number one, there is a pattern of leadership and submission within Adam and Eve's relationship before the fall. When the world was still as it should be, there was still a pattern of male leadership and female submission, and we'll explain what those mean as we go, before the fall happened, just a few ways to see that. In Genesis 2-7, uh, uh, Moses' writing just zooms in on the creation of Adam and Eve, and he shows us clearly that Adam was formed first. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, uh, and then he actually, God says it's not good for man to be alone, and so he sends him out into the garden to find animals, and he starts naming them. Why? Because he's looking for a helper that's suitable for him. And he didn't find one, right? Elephants, not really great. Giraffes, not too great, right? Badgers, I don't think so, right? So he goes to all these animals, and then there's not a helper that's suitable for him. So the second thing, what does God do? He forms a woman from Adam's body. He puts Adam to sleep. He takes a rib from Adam's body and he fashions it into a woman. And then he breathes life into the woman. That's found in Genesis 2, verses 21 and 22. And it is said in verse 18 that he that Eve was formed to be a helper for him. That, that Eve would be the suitable helper for him. And so even in the way that, that Adam and Eve were created you can see a leadership and help submission principle at play. And that was before things went badly. That was before sin entered the picture. Another way that you see this leadership and submission pattern is after the fall, after Adam and Eve had broken God's law and eaten the fruit that they were not supposed to eat, Adam is primarily held accountable. 
for their fall into sin. Adam is the one who God comes looking for. Look at Genesis 3, 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Right, Because they've hidden themselves now because after eating the fruit, they realize they're naked. They formed fig leaf underwear for themselves to cover their shame, which didn't work too well. And now they're hiding from God. And God comes looking for the man. He calls to Adam, where are you? And then Adam is the first one who has to give an account of what happened. The account that he gives is kind of skewed. It's kind of self-protective. We'll see that again later as well. But when he responds in verse 10, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So God asks him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, it's her fault. Right? The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. What was I supposed to do? She gave me some food, right? I'm, of course I'm going to eat what she gives me, right? So he totally throws her under the bus. But the point there is that Adam is the one who is primarily accountable, even though in the way that it happened, he wasn't the first one to sin, right? Eve listened to the voice of the serpent and gave in to the temptation and ate the fruit. And then she gave it to Adam and Adam fell into sin as well by eating the fruit. But Adam's the one that God comes looking for. Adam's the one that God says, where are you? What have you done? And Adam has to give the first account. And so I believe that there is a principle, a pattern of the leadership and accountability being on the shoulders of the husband and the helping and submitting uh, on the part of the wife before things go badly. The second argument I'd make along these lines is that Satan's strategy to lead Adam and Eve into sin really depends upon this leadership and submission pattern. Because what he does is goes the opposite direction and totally subverts God's intended order, right? The way that God created him. He created Adam to lead. He created Eve to help and submit to Adam's leadership and for them together to have uh, to, to steward the creation. And so what Satan does is he goes the exact, the exact opposite direction. He doesn't approach Adam, he approaches Eve. So if God's design is that the man leads the wife, the wife helps the husband, and together they steward the creation, what happens in the fall is that the creature leads the wife. And the husband follows the wife, and together they plunge creation into ruin. So Satan's very strategy of enticing them into sin depends upon the existence of this leadership and submission principle that he subverts and puts on its head. And of course they fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. So I don't think that the curse here is that there will from now on be a distinction in roles, and the husband will have a leadership role, and the wife will have a submission role, and that's all because of sin. I don't think that's the case. So I think what we had before the fall was leadership and submission within the marriage relationship, but in perfect balance and love and peace, where the husband led well and lovingly and generously and sacrificially and the wife gladly submitted to that loving leadership and assisted and lent her gifts and strengths to the work and together 
they cared for the world and were to be fruitful and multiply as God commanded them to do. So I don't think it means this is where gender roles, so to speak, within a marriage uh, came about. So what does it mean? Now we've kind of got that out of the way. What does it mean? Let's look at this phrase in verse 16. Your desire, the ESV actually says, shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The word there behind uh, desire is the Hebrew word teshuka, which means desire, longing, or craving. But there's a sense where that word can mean like the desire of a beast to devour. And you can get some help for what maybe it means in this context by looking one chapter ahead in Genesis 4, where we find Cain and Abel, the brothers, now these are the sons of Adam and Eve, and Abel brings an offering to the Lord, and the Lord accepts his offering, and Cain brings an offering, and the Lord does not accept Cain's offering. And Cain is angry with his brother, jealous of his brother, and begins to build this bitter hatred against his brother. And God comes to Cain and warns him in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire, that is, its teshuka, it's the very same word, its desire is for you or contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So you have the very same phrase, the desire for something, but the something ruling over. You have that very same phrase in Genesis 4. And in the case of Cain, it very clearly means that sin's desire is to swallow him up. It wants to control him. It wants to, to oppress and to, to, to absolutely devour him and control his desires and instincts. And, of course, God warns him not to do that. But you know the story. That's exactly what happens. Cain is consumed with this anger and this bitterness. And when he and his brother Abel are in the field together, he rises up against him and he kills him. That was sin's desire for Cain. His teshuka for Cain was to devour him, to control him. I believe that is the sense of that word that is at play here in Genesis 3, 16. Your desire, your teshuka, shall be for your husband, which means you will desire to control. You will desire to consume, to devour that, that's the kind of desire he's talking about here on the part of the wife, to, to usurp, to dominate, to control. But he shall rule over you. And I don't think we're talking here about a loving, patient, gentle leadership. I think we're talking here about putting you under my thumb. We're talking here about putting you in your place, right? The husband will oppress. The husband will even abuse. You can make the argument that that is in view there. So what's happening here is what used to work perfectly, the loving, sacrificial guidance and leadership of the husband and the glad, voluntary submission of the wife is now all out of whack and distorted. Because of sin, 
God's judgment upon it is human relationships are broken. Where there used to be peace and harmony and agreement, now there's going to be tension and fighting and striving. And just like God said to Cain in Genesis 4-7, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What that means is now you're going to fight back. You're going to subdue. You're going to oppress. And I think that's what happens now on the part of male leadership. Male leadership is distorted. It's no longer loving and sacrificial and careful and, and giving. It's now fighting back. It's now subduing. It's now oppressing. So the basic principle and pattern of human relationship is all twisted out of whack now. Well, do we see that trend? Do we see that trend in Adam and Eve's relationship? I mean, we just saw that as soon as God came to them and said, Adam, what have you done? What did he do? Did he say, I take, I take full responsibility for this, Lord. This was all my fault. I really should have stepped up. I really should have, have helped and, and said no to that serpent. But... He doesn't do that, does he? He goes, the, the woman you gave, she, she was with the serpent. She had this whole conversation with him, man. And he was like talking in her ear. And she was like, yeah, that sounds great. And so like, yeah, she did it first. And then she just gave it to me. What was I supposed to do, right? Was I supposed to say no? Like, I'm not going to sin along with you, right? He totally throws her under the bus. And it just gets worse from there. Then you've got brothers killing each other. Then you've got guys killing People like a Lamech down a few chapters later in Genesis who brags about murdering somebody because he like called him a name or something, right? So this gets worse and worse. Instead of taking ownership for his own failure of leadership, he's now throwing his wife under the bus. And I think beyond just the marriage relationship, again, Adam and Eve were the only two people at this point. And so this relationship is all that there was. Which translates to 100% of human relationships were broken as a result of sin. And you see the seed of that play out and bear fruit generation after generation as, as relationships fall apart. The foundation of peace with fellow man is broken. Do we see that trend continuing throughout human history? You better believe it. It's everywhere. Violence and murder... Domestic abuse? How about the Me Too movement? This is everywhere. I think this is Genesis 3.16. It's a mess. It's a distortion of leadership and submission and love and helping. It's a complete abolishing and, and distorting of those things. It's all throughout human history. If you just keep reading Genesis, you'll find example after example of relationships in conflict with each other as people fight against each other and try to win so to speak and so these examples you know murder and domestic abuse and all that like are they're common but they're a little extreme like if you just think did this happen well yeah look at these extreme cases but let's think more personally like more more basically how many perfect relationships do you have if you're married Raise your hand if you've never had a fight with your spouse. Think about family relationships, you know, your parents, your siblings, your children. How many of you have always treated each other with respect and kindness? 
Parents, how many times have you raised your voice or used your authority as a weapon to seek to control your child? I will rule over you, right? Teshuka. Kids, have you ever fought with your brother or sister to get your way or to win an argument? What is that? That's this brokenness, this relational brokenness. We're fighting against each other. How about our friendships? Does anybody have a friendship that's never been tested by sharp words, by disloyalty, by selfishness? Right? The marks of the curse are all over our human relationships. It's everywhere. I think this is what God meant when he said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. I think he meant marriage will be hard. Family will be hard. Friendship will be hard. Relationships will be hard because you won't trust each other. You'll strive against each other. You'll fight for the upper hand. And listen, every broken relationship and every moment of brokenness in an otherwise healthy relationship is a reminder that we are in desperate need of grace. We are in desperate need of God's grace to help us, to change us, to save us. This brokenness is beyond what we can repair. We can't fix what has been destroyed in our relationships. And I believe that is what this part of the curse is all about. In your human relationships, marriages, parent to child, children to other siblings, friends to other friends, will be a mess will be hard, will be marked by sin and brokenness. Good news, that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ came into our relational brokenness, and he paved a new way for us to live, a way of peace, harmony, and service, in a word, a way of love. So let's look at Jesus. Let's jump ahead in our transcendental flight now to the New Testament and look at Jesus a little bit. How does Jesus reverse this part of the curse? How does he redeem our relational brokenness? First, he is a submissive son. Jesus is a submissive son which is a little bit hard to even imagine because he's God, right? He is the eternal, self-existing Son of God by whom the entire world is created. And when he comes as a baby, he comes to human parents and he submits to them. He learns from them. He obeys their instructions. Luke 2.51 tells us this. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. But Mary has to be thinking, how strange for the Son of God to submit himself to my authority. To recognize that as his mother, I have authority in his life. And yet Jesus willingly submits himself to his parents' authority. He's a submissive son. 
We know that a part of God's law is honor your father and mother, right? And if Jesus is to be without sin, if Jesus is to fulfill the law, what does that mean he's got to do? He's got to honor his father and mother, which means he's got to recognize their authority in his life. He's got to follow their instruction. And so he does this perfectly as he's growing up under their authority. He is a submissive son where we were a mess, where we are unsubmissive, where we are volatile and fight back against the people in authority over us. He submits himself to God-given authority. Secondly, he's a servant to others. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this to his disciples, verse 42, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, they like rule with a heavy hand. Got to make sure you know I'm the boss. That's how they lead, right? Keep these people oppressed and burdened so that they don't try to rise up and fight against me, right? They lord it over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of God in human flesh serves. He does not demand to be honored, and to be served, he serves. Maybe the most poignant example of that service is in his sort of final speech to his disciples in John 13. It says in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around it. That was the task of a house slave in that day. That was about the lowest of tasks that somebody could be assigned, to wash the dusty, cracked, nasty feet of the master of the house. And Jesus lowers himself and washes the feet of his disciples. And then he says, you need to go do the same. You need to wash the feet of one another. I don't think he means that literally. You've got to go around and take shoes off and wash each other's feet. I think he means you need to lower yourself to serve another. And that's what he does. Where we fight for the upper hand, where we, Tashuka, desire to win, they're going to fight back. I'm going to get the, I'm going to win this fight. He lowers himself and is a servant to others. Third, he is a servant unto death. The, serve, the person he's serving there is ultimately his father. It's God who sent him into the world to bear the sins of humankind. In Philippians chapter 2, we, we read these words. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. That means he removed all of the status and honor and reputation that came with being God and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death cross. 
which is the most shameful and humiliating and barbaric of ways to die. That's how low he's willing to go to obey his father and to save his people. He becomes a servant even to death. Finally, Jesus reverses the curse by being a sacrificial husband. No, Jesus was not married during his time on earth. Contrary to persistent claims of some ridiculous shows on the Discovery Channel that pop up every now and then, right? Jesus was not married on earth. No, I'm talking about the mystery of marriage as it reflects the, heaven, the heavenly reality of Jesus as a bridegroom and the church as his bride. Grab your Bible and go to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. Ephesians chapter 5, kind of the middle of the New Testament, several letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul is writing here to the church in Ephesus and other churches in that region, and he gives some specific instructions about marriage to wives and husbands and how they should relate to each other, but it becomes clear that he's talking about something much broader than just a human relationship. Look at this, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just a word here. I think this does not mean since the fall when everything went bad, now wives should submit to their husbands and their husbands should leave their wives. I think this is God's design right here. Verse 25. Husbands, you're not off the hook, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man, and he quotes Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look at this. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That is maybe the, the most full and beautiful picture of what a Christian marriage ought to look like that we have in the Bible. It looks like, like wives gladly, willingly submitting themselves to the leadership of their husbands. Why? Out of blood for Christ. Because they would submit themselves to Christ, they submit themselves to their husbands. But it don't mean husbands get to have their own way, right? It doesn't mean, well, I'm sitting on the couch and I ask for another beer, so you better get to it. That's not what this means. How do husbands love their wives? By giving themselves up. By sacrificing themselves. I once heard someone define this kind of love as at my expense for her benefit. That's the kind of love 
with which a husband is to lead his wife. It's remarkable. It's it, it's it's different. It, it, it's back to what God had in mind before we messed it up and this got all distorted. But listen, it's more than this. Is just how Christian husbands and wives should relate to each other. Because what does Paul say down in verse thirty-two? I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. Genesis 3, the marriage relationship, and therefore all human relationships are totally messed up, totally broken and distorted, and now the wife is going to fight for control, and the husband is going to fight back and try to suppress and keep her in her place, so to speak. What Jesus does as a husband, he gives himself up. Where Adam went, her fault. You gave her to me, and she gave me the fruit, throwing her under the bus. Jesus says, I'll take it. Wasn't even mine to bear. But I'll take the blame. I'll take the penalty. I'll take the punishment for her sake. That's how Jesus loves his church. He gives himself up for her. And in all the ways that Adam and Eve fail in their relationship, in all the ways that we fail in our own relationships, Jesus did everything right. Jesus lives by God's design. And not just as an example to follow, but to purify us. Right? To cleanse us. To sanctify us. So Jesus reverses this curse of broken relationships by being a submissive son and a servant to others and a servant unto death and a sacrificial husband who gives himself up for the sake of his wife and the good of his wife. That's what leadership is supposed to look like. So what does this all mean for us? What does this have to do with how Christians are to live? Here's a sampling of some commands in the New Testament. We are to stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27. Not fighting against each other, but fighting with each other. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. That takes work. Eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's Ephesians 4.3. How do we do that? He tells us, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. If we're going to be in unity and at peace, it's going to take some bearing with each other, some forgiveness, some patience. We are to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, Romans 14, 19. We are to stir up one another to love and good deeds and to encourage one another, Hebrews 10, 25. We are to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, 1 Peter 3, 7. We are to love one another with brotherly affection, and I love this, to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 10. When's the last time you tried to fight against somebody to show them more honor? Right? That's not what we want to get honor. No, give. Outdo one another in showing honor. I could keep going. These commands are all over the New Testament. And I've heard people say before that this kind of community, where people are loving and serving and forgiving and all this, that, that it's countercultural, which is true. Because there's no other place in the culture where these things are really being lived out. But friends, this is not just countercultural. This is counter-curse. This is a reversal of the curse being lived out in our relationships in the church. 
As we follow Jesus, who indwells us by his spirit, we live in a new way that reverses the curse and upends that relational brokenness that Adam and Eve brought into the world. We are called to live with each other in such a way that the love and grace of Jesus Christ flow through us into others and picture for the world a coming kingdom where human relationships will once again and forevermore be whole. Don't you long for that day when all of this brokenness and hardship and pain and animosity and bickering and anger and unforgiveness is gone and we're in perfect harmony with each other. Let me ask you, how are you doing with this? How well are you loving your neighbor? How quick are you to forgive wrongdoing, to let go of grudges? How intentional are you about finding needs in people's lives and proactively meeting them? How generous are you toward your family, your church, your neighborhood with your time and money? How are you humbling yourself to serve another at your expense for their benefit? Jesus himself said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. That's the kind of life and relationship that he has called us to. And because he has reversed the curse and borne it for us, he's enabled us. He's empowered us by his spirit to live in this way. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Fighting against our sin, fighting for each other instead of against each other. All right, the destination. We've touched down now in the New Testament era and the, the, the grace of Jesus and the gospel. Now we're, now we're going to go to our final destination, that eternal kingdom, that final state of things for all eternity. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Nothing accursed. The curse is gone. The curse is a memory. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is there on his throne, and his servants, that's us, that's his people, will be there together worshiping him. That doesn't mean we're all going to look the same. We're all going to be the exact same cookie-cutter kind of person. It just means that the things, the differences and distinctions among us that tend to divide us and create uh, create barriers here in this fallen world won't divide us anymore. That's why John sees this multitude of thousands from every tribe and nation and language and tongue all gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus because they're still different. We're still distinct. God's kingdom is a very colorful place, but those differences don't divide us anymore because the curse is gone and we're in perfect harmony with one another as we worship the Lord Jesus together. Friends, your relational brokenness has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. He came to bear the curse for you. He came to save, to change, to equip us in our relationships so that we might now embody 
the character of Jesus as we live with one another. He came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Let's pray.